This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how the city can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. The first event, called Building for the Future, focuses on reducing the city's building-related greenhouse gas emissions. Part 2 begins with Katie Simons, Principal Advisor in Engineering with the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. Okay, so hi everyone. So my name is Katie Simons. Uh, thanks. So I'm going to talk about embodied carbon and uh, increasing carbon literacy, which um, Kerry's neatly introduced for me. Uh, but I'm going to tell you about where I've come from, first of all. So there's a picture of me looking quite fresh-faced, uh, straight out of university with a hard hat on. So that tells you I used to go to building sites. So I'm a structural engineer by background, which means that I design the parts of the building that hold buildings up. Um, and the picture on the right there is the first building I ever designed. Um, it's a psychiatric hospital in uh, Stevenage, just off the A1 in, in the UK, if anyone's been there. But uh, yeah, fresh out of university... Um, I was, uh, yeah, wanted to put what I'd learned at university to, to good use, designing buildings, but designing buildings for the future and reducing emissions. And I was really interested, um, quite heavily influenced by uh, this guy called uh, Dave Mackay, who wrote that book in the middle called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. And the tagline of that book, the driver of it was, it's all about numbers, not adjectives. So he um, became a special advisor to the UK government as they were looking um, to decarbonise their energy system. And he said, we can't do this just talking about numbers. We can't talk about, uh, you know, wind turbines being green or solar being sustainable. It's not about that. It's about numbers. Uh, and that really resonated with me as an engineer because engineers like numbers. Um, and, uh, yeah, there are a few numbers in here, but as Jessica said, hang on. Uh, so that's where I've come from on this journey. So um, looking at... Um, yeah, as we've heard, emissions from a building. This is a picture of um, how we like to um, think about when we talk about emissions from a building. Um, where do they come from? Uh, so we've got a whole life cycle diagram here. This is um, a lot of uh, pictures up there. But essentially, we're saying that at every stage of the life of a building and the life of the products and materials that go into a building, there are emissions. So those A numbers, that's making the stuff, the fabric of the building. Um, that, then the A is getting it to your building site. Then there's assembling it on site. Then, uh, then we start using the building. And uh, not only do we have the, some operational emissions from heating and uh, cooling our building, but we also might replace stuff in the building while we use it as well. So they're all um, uh, maintenance and repair emissions associated with that as well. Then uh, we decide the building's no good to us anymore. We demolish it. Uh, we might chuck stuff out or we might um, try and recycle it. That would be a better thing to do. Um, but all of those life cycle stages have emissions um, associated with them. And the embodied emissions are everything in that blue cloud. The operational emissions are the, the ones, the green ones left out of it. And, and the thing about the embodied emissions is they're, they're kind of hidden and they're indirect. And that's historically why they've been um, hard to measure. They're, they're, they're harder to measure. They're hard to see than the operational emissions, which operational emissions, which um, essentially come from your power bills. So that's looking at emissions from the building sector on a building perspective. But what about uh, for New Zealand Inc. per year? Um, 
few more numbers here. So what did we hit? 2.7 megatons for Christchurch. So for the whole of New Zealand, our annual emissions are 69 megatons. And our modelling, um, we've come up with a number of uh, 15% of that 69 megatons comes from the use of buildings in New Zealand. And that's broken down into um, embodied and operational uh, emissions. There we go. So um, the operational emissions are the lower two. Um, the, the dark blue is burning fossil fuels in the building. Um, the, uh, the, the kind of lighter dark blue with the arrow in it, that's electricity that we use to um, operate our buildings. But those top three bands, that's all your embodied emissions. The stuff from the material in buildings, the stuff from waste in buildings, and the pink one is important. It's the stuff from material that is made overseas and is imported into New Zealand. But that's still counted as um, emissions from the building sector, emissions that we drive every time we build a new building. So what's the government doing about this? So we're all hopefully aware of the Climate Change Commission. Um, they published their final advice on how we are going to meet our zero carbon by 2050 goal a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's going to result in the government responding by publishing uh, a national emissions reduction plan by the end of the year. So the government has to do this. Um, that's what the Zero Carbon Act um, passed in 2019 said we would have to do. And for the building and construction sector, um, we've responded by uh, launching the Building for Climate Change programme, which is the programme that I'm involved with in MB. Uh, so last year, we published these two frameworks um, for public consultation. Um, they contain proposals to regulate the um, operational uh, uh, emissions from buildings and the whole-of-life embodied carbon emissions from building. And that's what I'm talking about now. I'll want to talk about the, tra the operational one later. So whole-of-life embodied carbon emissions reduction, bit of a um, mouthful. I like to call it WOLEC. <laughs> Uh, so, so the headline of the uh, of the framework that was published was we're going to um, start with new buildings. So every time you build a new building, you have to tell us um, what the embodied carbon of that new building is. Um, next step after that is once we're all used to doing that, um, we're going to introduce a cap on embodied carbon. So you won't get a building consent until you can show that your embodied carbon of the building is underneath the cap. And then over time, we'll gradually reduce that cap in line with our national emissions reductions targets. So, um, and in the framework, um, we, we set out objectives of how we were going to do this, how we're going to measure embodied carbon and, and reduce embodied carbon. And, and I tried to keep it quite simple. So there's a, it is an equation there, I know, but, um, it's essentially just multiplying three numbers together. Um, it's the amount of stuff we build. That's the meter squared stuff. It's the amount of material we use to build that area. Um, that's our material efficiency. And then it's the amount of carbon associated with that material that we use. So in, in essence, everything that we do um, to, to achieve the objective of reducing whole of life and body carbon, should be, we should be able to link it back to reducing one of those three numbers. And I want you to think about that, those three numbers. Yeah, reduce those three numbers. So how do we do that? Um, I'm really glad we've already heard about the term carbon literacy. So um, requires a bit of number crunching and does require um, us to be more familiar with um, um, the, the numbers and the magnitude of the uh, impact and what a kilogram of carbon means. Um, so it's really important that it's not just... It's um, not just for specialists, but it's for everyone involved in the building sector. If we're going to do this, if we need to do it together. We need to know what our impact is. It can't be something that we can package up into a black box and ask someone else to deal with. So we all need to have a kind of gut feel of what a good 
embodied carbon result for a building is um, over the whole of life. Because if we want to reduce that, if we want to reduce that number, um, we're going to have to quantify it. We can't, we can't reduce something if we don't know where we're starting from. But the good news is that there is growing interest in this. Um, you know, popular science books like tells you, you know, how much carbon is in your banana, uh, you know, becoming more and more, more and more popular. There's a growing interest uh, in, in doing this. And what we want to try and do is empower people to give them the tools that they need to, to, to do this. So now I'm going to go back do a quick example of carbon literacy uh, and go back to the building that I designed, remember? Um, uh, so this is about quantifying my impact. So that was a steel frame building. You can see all those beams and columns made out of nice structural steel. There, was, there were 310 tonnes of steel in that building. And it was quite a big building. That It came out to about 45 kilograms of tonne of steel per, per square metre of area in that building. Now, about that time, we would benchmark a steel frame building at about 75 kilograms um, of steel per square metre area. So... For various reasons, I was able to design that building quite efficiently. Um, and over the whole of that building, um, I saved about 200 tonnes of steel. Uh, uh, yeah, 200 tonnes of steel compared with if it had been a kind of typical benchmark um, quantities. And at, going at about two kilograms of carbon per kilogram of steel, that's about 400 tonnes of carbon saved. So that's going back to those three numbers, that's that middle number, that material efficiency. So by able to reduce that um, material efficiency number, I've saved some carbon and I'm able to quantify it. Uh, but what does it mean? So I could compare it to... Um, to a couple of things. I could compare it to switching to a vegan diet, which is about worth about two tonnes per year per person. So it's about 200 um, years or 200 people going vegan for a year. Or flying back to the UK to see my family, I could do that um, uh, about 100 times um, for what I did on that building. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be all be switching to vegan diets or and reducing our flights. I think what I'm just trying to illustrate is that my role as a graduate engineer straight out of university, I had the power, and it's a real privilege, um, I had the opportunity to make that change and to have that impact in my day job. And that's the sort of thing that everyone in the building sector needs to um, grasp hold of and understand and take those opportunities. Uh, it's not a new thing. I like to use this example as a what I think what I'd like to think of as an early example of carbon literacy. Back in 1978, um, that's Norman Foster on the left. You can tell he's uh, an architect because he's wearing a black polo neck. Uh, the guy on the right is uh, Richard Buckminster Fuller. Uh, he was also an architect, but was a kind of visionary, sort of polymath, and a real early sustainability pioneer, kind of before it was fashionable. Um, he was really um, he became famous for designing these like super ultralight weight geodesic dome structures um and he met norman foster uh, at a grand opening of one of his new buildings in the uk and everyone was talking about how wonderful the design philosophy was and his inspiration and all um yeah all buckminster fuller wanted to, wanted to know was yes yes mr Fuller, that's all great but but how much does your building weigh and norman foster didn't know the answer and I'd like to think that 50 years later, not only do we all need to know how much our building weighs, um, you know, the material efficiency, but we also need to know um, what the carbon associated with our building is. So, yeah, to finish, uh, conclude. So to reduce embodied carbon, increase our carbon literacy, it's about numbers, not adjectives. The, the real number that matters is that kilograms of CO2. Um, we can't reduce things um, if we don't quantify it. So 
everybody who's involved in any way of um, buildings know what your building weighs uh, and then know your own potential impact and whatever role I've explained my role as a structural engineer but there'll be all sorts of different um, opportunities for different people in the building sector to reduce their impact so think about how you can reduce those three numbers thank you So, my name is Scott Watson, and for those of you concerned, I'm not on day release from the prison. It's a different Scott Watson up here today. Um, and I'm business development director, according to that, for Nailer Love. And so I'm one of those evil builders that builds these carbon-eating buildings all over the place. A little bit of background. I'll just find the right button here. So Naila Love, um, a few years ago, decided to measure its own carbon footprint, like a lot of you would have done, and we discovered that having 300 Ford Ranger utes wasn't a great idea, and uh, a lot of the waste off the construction sites, etc. So we did our best to reduce those figures, and, and we're doing really well. But we also wanted to know what the best bang for your buck would be in terms of actually making a massive difference. The, we won't go back through the whole carbon cycle because we've, we've been with other speakers, but the bit that's important here is engineered timber... Uh, we all know it sequences carbon as it grows. We know that it takes very little energy to produce compared to concrete and steel. And we know that as long as we plant another tree, the cycle continues. So if we chop down the Amazon forest and we don't plant any new trees, we shouldn't be building out of timber. So the sequence works as long as you continue to build out of timber. What sort of stuff can we build with timber? Pretty cool building. That's the Nelson Airport. Um, full seismic load taken by the timber with these expensive little brackets here. Uh, the more simple structure, I think there's Rangiora High School, Redcliffs Primary School. This is a hybrid building, so this building you can see the concrete structure in the middle. What the concrete structure does is takes the seismic load and the rest of the building is timber and it takes the gravity load. And through the studies we've done, we've basically come up with that as being the most economic commercial structure to build. Uh, industrial buildings, this is a fertiliser works. We didn't build this to save the planet, we built it so it wouldn't rust. We've got some brownie points. And the Cardboard Cathedral, which is actually a timber hybrid building. So inside every cardboard tube is a timber beam. Sort of like shooting Santa Claus, isn't it? Sorry about that. <laughs> so it's not cardboard at all. What carbon savings can we achieve with engineered timber? So we set about and we started to measure these. We took a sample building, which you've probably walked past, Bedford Apartments. Now, these are just down the road. They're a standard, uh, modest, sort of four- or five-storey building, uh, quite, quite correctly built out of concrete and steel. We then redesigned it in two different ways. So we did a timber version, which is almost, almost all timber, but still had concrete and steel foundations. And we did a hybrid structure on the right, which is timber and steel hybrid. Okay. We then created our own carbon calculator, which is basically the equations that we've, we've been dealing with before, but we created a database of all the materials. So very briefly, when you measure these materials, there's the three different designs and the three different amounts of material. We saw that in the two to the right, we still have a lot of concrete and steel. So we thought the carbon saving would be fairly nominal. Anyway, we carried on, and the saving was over 90%. So even with a real modest... Uh, amount of timber put into the building. You can see on the far right, sorry, left. No, you're right. 
Um, the difference between the hybrid structure and the almost total timber structure is quite small, but the difference in cost is significant. So for that particular building, the cost to build the hybrid, which on the right is on the far right, is comparative to the concrete and steel. It's a little bit more expensive, but comparative. If we went to almost 100% timber, the cost goes quite high. Um, but, you know, it shows with the hybrid structure you can achieve a significant saving. Trying to do a comparator to that, for that one rather modest building, we were saving the equivalent of burning 1.167 million kilos of coal. So while it's great to do our hybrid cars and electric cars and waste control, etc., we do have to realise that just a nominal change to some of the building materials makes a massive effect on the environment. It was at this point in time I had a Jacinda moment, which is not like me and actually quite disturbing. <laughs> Come on, Jacinda, don't let me down. Okay, so that uh, saving that we made was the same as 100 people, which is probably what we've got in here, driving electric vehicles for eight years. That's a lot of electric vehicles and a lot of people. All that saving was just done by one building, changing some of the materials to timber. And for those of you that are interested, uh, on the Nader Love website you can find our own carbon calculator which we've released to the planet and you can download that for free and you can add and subtract EPDs from that with your calculations. Five minutes, that was okay. Thank you. Okay, good evening. You're doing well out there. This procession of speakers is carrying on, but we're doing well. My name's Andy Buchanan. I'm a structural engineer. I was, for a few years, professor of civil engineering at the university, where I taught people to how to design timber buildings and how to do a few carbon calculations on the side. So, am I doing the slides? I guess I am. No, nothing's happening. Here we go. So, what have I got here? Trees. This is the forest I own up in Marlborough. And what's in those trees? About half of the weight of the wood in those trees is carbon. There's carbon in those trees. And that's why people plant forests to sequester carbon. And you can do lots of things with carbon in trees because it can be stored in the wood. And if you build a building like this, you know that building? Old government building in Wellington. It's been there since 1876. I haven't got the numbers on that, but there are tons and hundreds of tons of carbon stored in that building, and that carbon is in the building. It's not in the atmosphere. Um, if we want to encourage this, what I like to think about is something called a wood-first policy. And there's a little bit of history here, because way back in about 15 years ago, when Jim Anderton was Minister of Forests, and Deputy Prime Minister, he set up a wood-first policy in New Zealand. Most people don't know about it. Um, British Columbia followed New Zealand and set up a wood-first policy. The state of Tasmania did the same thing. The city of Rotorua has done the same thing. What about Christchurch? Well, all of those previous places are timber, timber towns, forestry. I think in Christchurch we should have a zero-embodied carbon policy. What does that mean? It means... If we, if we decided for all of our new buildings that the carbon sequestered in the wood 
offsets the CO2 emissions from making all the other materials in the building, that would be zero embodied carbon. It would just be what you'd seen from Scott and from Katie. And as an example, let's look at the St Albans Community Centre. And I was that's the same building that's shown on the brochure here. I was at that building at the official opening about three weeks ago, and our Mayor Leanne Dalzell opened the building, and I asked her afterwards, why didn't you say something about the carbon? Well, we heard about it tonight. Sarah told us about the carbon in that building because that's how the building was built. It's all built out of wood. There's no concrete in that building. It's got wooden panels for the floor and for the walls and for the roof. It's made of something called cross-laminated timber, um, and it's for the walls and the floors. There's about 150 tonnes of wood in that building, which is equivalent to 180 tonnes of carbon sequestered, the numbers we talked about. And the simple number I like to think about, I did a quick calculation, if you drive your car for a million kilometres, this would offset the driving of your car for a million kilometres. It's a huge amount of carbon, but one's not enough. It's even better than zero embodied carbon. It's, it's carbon negative. So then I'd quickly say there are lots of other reasons for building in wood, and I'm going to go quickly now. The low carbon footprint, that's a renewable resource, lovely appearance, healthy environment, time and cost, lightweight structure, earthquake resilience, top quality performance. There's lots of other reasons for building in wood, not just the carbon footprint. But it's not so easy because there's a lot of resistance. And how do you get more timber buildings? Well, you lead by example, as Christchurch City has done with St. Mount Pleasant Community Centre, uh, St. Albans Community Centre and others. Uh, and then we have to support the public demand and encourage the building owners and celebrate the successful projects with some education for designers and buildings, builders and promote the carbon benefits and promote the concept of zero embodied carbon. And here's another building on the right, the Young Hunter Building down next to Vic's Cafe, Victoria Street. That is all a structural timber building with zero embodied carbon. So my conclusion simply is this. The more trees we plant and replant and use for timber buildings, the better it is for people and the planet. Thank you. I hope you can hear me now. Sorry, technology with these things always a challenge. So my name's Elrond Burrell, and um, I'm going to talk today about the operational efficiency part of the Building for Climate Change. I'm the Principal Advisor for Architecture and Design in the Building Systems Performance Branch of MB, and I'm also an architect. Um, I work part-time for MB and part-time run my own business as an architect um, focused on low-carbon architecture, and I'm also Chair of the Board for the Passive House Institute New Zealand. The operational efficiency part of Building for Climate Change has... Um, three main objectives to it. One is to reduce the operational emissions, which Katie's already touched on in the whole of life, um, whole of life carbon cycle. And that includes um, the thermal performance of buildings, the, the use of electricity and other fuels for building services and for uh, other things we use in our buildings, as well as the water use. The second objective is about reducing water use in buildings. And then the third objective is to improve occupant um, health and well-being, which is related to the other two. So the first thing I think is worth mentioning is why do we need to think about 
operational efficiency in New Zealand's context. We're used to thinking of New Zealand having a really high degree of renewable electricity particularly. Um, there's a few different aspects to this. Um, first off is that renewable energy does not equal emissions-free energy. So the electricity grid in New Zealand is partially powered by different forms of renewable energy from hydro, from wind, from um, solar, etc. It also has quite a component of geothermal um, electricity generation, which has emissions associated with it. And then we also use fossil fuels, particularly this year, um, quite a bit, when, particularly when we have low hydro lakes and we're not able to produce so much electricity from those. And then alongside those also, the electricity grid has whole-of-life emissions. So um, Katie's talked about the whole-of-life emissions from buildings, but the, uh, the generation facilities and the infrastructure associated with electricity also have the whole-of-life emissions. So building uh, building more wind turbines, building more dams, those sort of things all have emissions associated with them. The other thing which is really important is that um, operational emissions accumulate over time. So when we build a building this year, we lock in its performance for a very long time to come. So the emissions that come out of it one day or one week or one year might not be so much, but over time they add up to a considerable amount. And the other thing is that, of course, we're trying to get New Zealand to zero carbon emissions by 2050. And that means we have to decarbonize a whole lot of other industries and a whole lot of other aspects of our economy besides just um, buildings and transport we talked about already. And one of those, um, one of the implications of that is that there's a whole lot of other parts of our um, our lives and our economy that need to electrify and use electricity instead of fossil fuels, particularly um, transport. And so Transpower has predicted that um, on their calculations, we need to double capacity of electricity by 2050 to meet all those needs where we're developing as we decarbonize. And so we need to... Um, we need to look at where we can bring in efficiency, so we need to use less electricity to make that available for other other aspects. And then, as I talked about, of course, as we build more and more, there's the life cycle emissions from that building out infrastructure we're doing also. And just to put some numbers to it, I think it's been a bit of a theme for tonight is to talk about numbers, not just general kind of things. Is it if, for instance, you had a, a 200 square meter house, it might be using somewhere between 20 and 30,000 kilowatts of electricity per year to keep it warm and uh, dry and comfortable. If we take the current emissions factor from the electricity grid of 0.11 kilograms of CO2 for every kilowatt hour of electricity used, that means that 200 square meter house is putting out about 3.3 tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year. So that's in the context of, you think about the, the Christchurch number was 2.7 megatons per year. So 3.3 tons for one building. Um, and so uh, what we're looking at with the operational efficiency part of building for climate change is can we reduce that significantly down? So what if we could achieve buildings that only need, you know, 10 or 20% of that? So we're only talking about 0.3 of a ton per year of emissions rather than 3.3. And just to put that in another context, the book that Katie put up before about how bad bananas are is um, in there they talk about a 10-ton lifestyle. So people having 10 tons allocated to them per year for their emissions across everything they do. So if we're emitting three tons just from our house, keeping comfortable and warm, that's already a third of our annual um, emissions budget per person that we can use. So operational efficiency is really important. It's also something we can do really quite directly with our buildings and quite, um, quite easily in a sense. The part of that that I want to talk about, which is a really big part of it, is the thermal performance of buildings. So there's a whole lot of different aspects of buildings that impact on how many operational emissions there are. One of the big ones, which makes up about a third of that, is the thermal performance of the building. And this means how the building 
how the building is designed and built so that it can stay comfortable all year round without using or how much energy it needs to use to stay comfortable all year round. So this is about how much insulation is, but also how much insulation is used in it rather, but also how well it's put together in the shape and the form of the building. And uh, people quite often talk about the annual heating demand. So the, the kilowatt hours per square meter um, of that building to maintain it as comfortable and healthy inside. And if you build a, if you design and build a very complex building, so uh, perhaps a cruciform and plan, that can have twice as much surface area as a building which is more simple in form, so a rectangular one, which means that you need twice as much insulation just in order to keep the same level of thermal performance for that building. And then the other aspect of thermal performance, which is really important, is that it relates directly to the health and well-being and how we experience our buildings. And I think that um, one of the things we've got to really keep in mind all the way through this process is that as we make changes to how we design and use buildings, is that um, as was touched on by the very um, one of the very early speakers, is that buildings are for people. So people need to be at the centre of what we're doing when it comes to uh, climate change action and the way we build, way we design and build buildings also. And it's quite possible to think about low operational emissions for buildings as being about put another jumper on and kind of like try and keep warm in a very poor indoor environment, which I think most of us in New Zealand have grown up with that kind of uh, that kind of experience. And I grew up in uh, Canterbury, just outside Christchurch, so I'm quite familiar with uh, very cold winters and wearing more layers of clothes and seeing my breath in the morning. But that's not what we want to achieve with this operational efficiency being uh, um, being brought in as part of building for climate change. We want to see that. As buildings get more energy efficient, we want to see indoor environmental qualities, so how warm and dry and well-ventilated they are, is also improving at the same time, not being compromised. And these things have a relationship between them. So buildings operate as a kind of system. So if you change one part of the system, you have an impact on another part of them, which is why I've got this triangle up on screen to try and give a bit of a, a clear kind of insight into how these things can relate to each other. So the first thing we can say is if we want to just simply improve indoor environmental quality, we should probably just heat our buildings and ventilate our buildings a whole lot better than what we do typically at the moment. And if we just do that, then we in inevitably use more energy because we have to just start using bigger heaters and more often. And um, if we go the other way and we say, actually, we just want to reduce energy use, we want to reduce operational emissions, and we don't really want to think about the other things, then you can have a negative impact on indoor environmental quality. So even if you put another jumper on, if your house is cold, it's not going to be very good for your health or your well-being. If, on the other hand, we take a different approach and we say, actually, we want to improve the thermal performance of our buildings, and we want to relate that to how warm and dry and well-ventilated and healthy our buildings are, then th doing those two things in conjunction with each, with each other inherently pulls down the amount of energy we need to use in our buildings. So this is one of the reasons why thermal performance is really critical in terms of getting the balance right between lowering operational emissions and improving the indoor environmental quality of our buildings. And the way the building code works in New Zealand at the moment, these things are covered, but they're kind of covered in different aspects and they don't relate very strongly to each other. So part of the building for climate change work is looking at how we do bring these things together so that we have a building code that works on outputs or outcomes for people and for the environment and not just about what the inputs that you put into designing a building are. I just wanted to touch on a couple of things which Katie already picked up on some of these things. So other things the government is doing around this kind of area is that there's a carbon neutral government program underway, which is that all uh, ministries and agencies that are part of the government need to reach um, carbon neutral in their operations by 2025. 
Um, I believe this also impacts on local governments. Um, so this is reducing operational emissions, reducing embodied carbon emissions also. And then it, at the point where they get to um, the kind of reductions they can sensibly get to, then offsetting the remaining of those emissions also. Uh, we're also looking at energy performance certificates. These have been brought up quite a number of times, which is kind of a, a, a way of rating a building to say how well it performs in terms of the energy use needed to keep it at a, at a good temperature and a healthy, comfortable interior. Um, all the different parts of government are, of course, responding to the Climate Change Commission's final report and the different aspects from that. And then uh, this year, there's a lot of work being done on the emissions reduction plan, which we expect to be published later on this year. So that's um, a very brief overview on the operational efficiency, and I'll pass on to the next speaker. This has been part two of Building for the Future, the first event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. Podcasts of this series are available from the Plains FM website. Search Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.